would also like to welcome our internet audience with us today, and we appreciate so much that we have the opportunity of preaching live from this platform through the medium of getting the gospel out and getting Bible truths out, and we're so thankful for that. Uh, We hear from some of our people from time to time, and many, and some of them take time out to get their Bibles ready uh, for the broadcast, which comes on at 11 o'clock. And uh, they follow along when I speak about a certain reference at home, wherever they may be, and in other parts of the world. They've got a copy of God's Word, and they follow along the Scriptures, just like many of you do here in this audience So we're so thankful for that blessed opportunity. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. The Gospel of John, chapter number 17. We are in a series of studies on the intercessory prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. The intercessory prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to read for your hearing the first two verses. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may also glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Now we brought out last week, and I want to emphasize it, that we do not confuse the model prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ with his intercessory prayer in John number 17. Take a moment, if you would please, to go back to Luke Chapter number 11, verses 1 through 4. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4 came to pass. In verse 1, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. Lord, we'd like, we've heard you pray. Now, you teach us. What do we say when we pray? How do we pray? What things should we pray for? They were very serious in that petition. And he said unto them, When you pray, say. This is why it's called the model prayer. It has been confused by many denominations of being the prayer you pray And it's the Lord's Prayer. But you see, in this model prayer, the disciples are praying. In the intercessory prayer, Jesus Christ is praying. There's a difference in those two. So the prayer of Jesus Christ in John 17 is a picture of his intercessory work with the Father in heaven On this earth are his people, and he's up there, and he prays for us, and he prays 
to the Father on our behalf. In the ninth chapter of the book of Hebrews, it is very clearly stated that truth. The Bible says in verse number 27, Hebrews 9, 24, pardon me, pardon me. Hebrews 9, 24, Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God, not for himself, but to appear in the presence of God for us. And then again, I do so love 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. But if any believer, if any one of you sin, we have an advocate, not as not going to have or used to have, but we have at the time of our sinning, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is that advocate? Who is that intercessor? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Someone has said better for us to have Christ in heaven than to have him on earth. In heaven, he pleads our case to the Father. He sends the Holy Spirit to deal with us on this earth. The upper room discourse began in John chapter number 13. After observing the feast of the Passover the washing of the disciples' feet, the Lord's Supper instituted was in that particular chapter, and he began to introduce his disciples to the Holy Spirit. Christ and his disciples depart to go to Gethsemane. Now, in John chapter 14, verse 31, if you would write the references down, John 14, verse 31 Christ said, but that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. He's ready to leave the upper room now and make the trip over to Gethsemane. And also in Matthew chapter 26 verse 30, it says, and when they had sung an hymn, They went into the Mount of Olives. That's where Gethsemane Gethsemane was located. Now in route to Gethsemane from the upper room where he instituted the Passover feast and observed it to get over to Gethsemane, the Lord presents himself and talks with them on their way over there. He presents himself that he is the vine And they are the branches that's found in John chapter 15. He speaks more about the coming of the Holy Spirit in John 16. And in John 16 it says this, Nevertheless I tell you the truth, verse 7, It's expedient for you that I go away. If I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I'll send him unto you. Now when he's come, when the spirit of truth is come, in verse 13, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, 
that shall he speak and he will show you things to come. That's found in chapter number 16. He also warned them at the closing of chapter 16 that they were going to be faced with some hard times. He's leaving them and they're going to be faced with some hard times. Verses 32 and 33. Behold, the hour cometh it now is come. You shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world, you're going to have some tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And if you take the time to compare chapter 17, verse 1... With chapter 18, verse 1, you get this scenario of leaving the Mount of Olives, or rather leaving the uh, place of the Passover, the upper room, and going over. It kind of sets forth that progression. In chapter 17 of John, verse 1, these things spake Jesus, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son may also glorify thee. In chapter 18, when he finishes the intercessory prayer, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with the disciples over the book Cedron, where was a garden into the which he entered, and his disciples, that is the prayer he prayed in Gethsemane. But between those two things, in that interval... He gives us this great intercessory prayer. Looking at just briefly some of the highlights of verse 1 we mentioned to you last week, this is a father-son relationship. Jesus Christ is talking to his Father. Now where is the Father? In heaven, in the model prayer. He said, Our Father, who art in heaven... And so he's praying as a son to his father. Prayer is not for the unsaved man. Prayer is not for the unregenerate. Prayer is not for those who have rejected Christ as their Savior. A man who is unsaved has no basis to approach God apart from the saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, well, I thought God was the Father of us all. No, He's not. He's the Father of creation, and He created all of us, but that does not make us His sons. Those who do not know the Lord as Savior are not sons of God. They're sons of the devil, and they have no grounds to pray to the Father which is in heaven. In John chapter 9, verse number 31. Now we know that God heareth not sinners. Did you listen to that? We know there's some Baptists that haven't figured that out yet. But we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will... Him he heareth. In the book of Proverbs chapter 28 verse 9, He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer, 
shall be an abomination. When a man who is unregenerate tries to force himself into a father-son relationship and pray to God, it is an abomination. I think maybe sometimes, and I've heard it said from men of this caliber, that they do not know Christ, have never come to trust Christ, and yet they said, but you don't understand, preach. I pray every morning, not worth a dime. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have no right to call him my Father. Said, okay. Well, it's so, whether it's okay or not. It's a father-son relationship. Now, the hour that Christ speaks of is a time period, not 12 hours to a day or so many. No, it's, it's, a, it's a period of time and involved several things. It would involve his trials, his beatings, and his crucifixion. It would also refer to the time when the serpent would bite his heel. All right. Two main reasons for the prayer. What is the prayer? These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and just read it. Verses 1 and verse number 2 give us two main reasons why Christ is praying this intercessory prayer. One is for the glory of God. Look at verse number 1. The hour is come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. The purpose of his praying primarily was the glory of God. The glory of God. The second reason he is praying is found in verse number 2. The salvation of men. Thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Think it not strange that one comes before the other. Glory to God comes before the salvation of men. The most important thing in this life, my dear friends, is that God might be glorified. I want to make a statement that's a little harsh. But you know what? I've got a Bible that's pretty harsh. Sometimes God is glorified by sending people to hell. And there are other times when God is glorified by selecting those to go to heaven. But he's glorified that God is always right. He never makes a mistake. And all that we are and all that we have or ever will be, we give glory to God because he's done it, and he's the author of it. And so you have the glory of God and the salvation of men. How did the Father glorify the Son? The hour is come, in verse 1, glorify thy Son, that the Son may also glorify thee. How did the Father glorify the Son? How did the Father answer this prayer? I believe every prayer Jesus ever prayed was answered. And this one was answered. Victory is essential to glory. There is no glory in defeat. 
Now, I'm a little fond of football. I do like it. But there is no glory and the home team crowd does not cheer when the home team fumbles the ball. They cheer when a touchdown is made. Victory is essential to glory. There And sometimes we get beside ourselves cheering and screaming when somebody makes a touchdown. There's no glory for Goliath when David cut off his head. Now before David did that glory, it was given unto Goliath. Huge man of statue. He had a sharp, long sword. And he led the Philistines in battle. But David took care of that by casting a stone that hit him in the forehead. And there was glory not for Goliath, but there was glory for David when he came into Jerusalem swinging the head of Goliath. Well, the people singing behind him, Saul had slain his thousands, but David his Ten thousands. Reason I preface this, how did the Father glorify the Son? Victory is essential to glory. I want to tell you something. Christ did not fumble the ball at Calvary. He accomplished something. He got us the victory. The Father glorified His Son in His death. How did the Father glorify His Son in death? In John chapter number 12, verse 32, the Lord Jesus said that the Son of Man must be lifted up, and if He's lifted up, He will draw all men unto Himself. That does not mean all men without exception. If it meant all men without exception, then every man would go to heaven if he draws them. But he came to draw some men unto himself. The Father glorified his Son in the death of Christ. Notice that Christ Jesus did not die lying down. He died lifted up. Victory. If the Son is lifted up, He'll draw all men unto Himself. There was a victory to be won, and He won it on the cross. He could have called 10,000 angels, but He did not. He could have come down from the cross in defeat, but He did not. He stayed on the cross in victory. And when He did... Several things happened. Number one, nature bowed her knee to the Son of God. All of a sudden, the Son could not work any longer. And for three solid hours, there was total darkness over all the land. Not only that, but accompanying that darkness, God sent an earthquake of his approval of what his son was doing. 
And that earthquake jarred the very premise where they were standing and where Christ was being lifted up. Nature responded to it. The temple went out of business because the veil was split from the top to the bottom. And therefore there was no need for an earthly priest to try and go behind the veil with an animal sacrifice anymore. It was demonic. God the Father was approving what Christ His Son was doing. Victory. Victory. Even a Roman centurion who could outcuss all the other Romans said when Christ was being crucified, truly this was the Son of God. He could never have said that without the Holy Spirit of God. And on top of all that, he accomplished an effectual atonement. Those for whom he died, every last one of them were atoned for by what Christ did on the cross of Calvary. You will find that in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 11 and 12. Notable it is Isaiah chapter 53, verses 11 and 12. He shall see the travail of his soul. Now this is a picture of Christ hanging on the cross and whatever he's doing, the Father is pleased with it. He's never always pleased with what I do, but he was pleased with his son. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. He shall see the travail, the anguish, the punishment, the torture. He'll see the travail of the son of his, the soul of his son and shall be satisfied. God was satisfied by what Christ was doing on the cross. He was glorifying his son. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I'll divide him a portion with the great. He'll divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors and notice he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. How did the Father glorify the Son? He glorified the Son in his death. God was satisfied by the death of his son, payment for our sins, he was satisfied with it. Now why in heaven's name do some preachers have trouble with that? They just somehow or another want man to have a little bit to do with that. Now God just can go so far. And he, he would really like to save you. And, and he, he wants you, he wants you to save, but you've got to cooperate just a little bit. I so like what the preacher said, regardless of his skin color. He said there's only been two movements in the salvation of man. Number one, we were running from God. And number two, God was running after us. And he won. Hey, he won. There is no victory in death apart from the resurrection. That's another reason how the Father is glorifying the Son. 
He glorified the Son not only in His crucifixion, but He glorified the Son after His crucifixion. In John chapter 10, verses number 17 and 18, you're familiar with. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. In that passage of Scripture, it says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I've got the power to take it again. This commandment have I received from my Father. How could Jesus Christ raise himself from the dead because the Father gave him commandment to do it, and he did it. After three days and three nights, in the tomb and in the heart of the earth, Jesus Christ arose from the dead. There's no victory in death apart from the resurrection. If Christ hath not resurrected, we have no hope. We have no way to be saved. If Christ be not the resurrected Son of God, we have no joy, no prospect of anything. This life or the life that shall come. In the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter number 15, verses 13 through 17. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. If Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is vain. Yea, we're found false witnesses of God, because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised him not up. If so be that Christ, or dead, rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, yet you are still in your sins. Resurrection. And the Father was glorifying the Son in His death, but He also was glorifying the Son in His resurrection. The surety was let out of prison. The surety was let out of prison. And when the surety is released, the debt is paid. Who is our surety? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that will pay the debt that you and I owed. He stayed in prison in the tomb for three days and three nights. And when the surety was paid, God opened up the prison doors and Christ bodily arose from the dead. What does that translate? The debt has been paid. And if he paid the debt for your sins, you will never have to pay for them. That would be nothing short of blasphemy and jeopardy that God not only would pay for your sins, but now you've got to pay for them. I'm telling you, his death paid our debt. He emerged out of the tomb (laughs) with the keys of death, hell, and the grave. What glory! 
What glory? Now then, how will the Son glorify the Father? Father, glorify the Son that the Son may glorify thee. We see this in verse number 2 of our text in John chapter 17. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Christ has all power over all flesh. It's not confined just to the elect. And it is not defined or limited just to the church. Christ has all power. Did he not say in the Great Commission, All power is given unto me in heaven and on this earth. He has power over all flesh. And Christ rules by providence. You know what providence is? It's that ruling factor that governs your life from the day you are born till the day you die and God's behind the whole thing. Providence, the providence of God. In Psalm chapter number 2, verses 6 through 9. Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9. God says, Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now watch it. God is saying, Ask of me, my son. Ask of me, and I'll give you the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Well, what about those that won't receive him? Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. How does the Son glorify the Father? He has power over all flesh. All flesh. The Bible says in Psalm 89, verses 26 and 27, He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, also I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. Psalm 24, verses 1 through 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. He hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. In Psalm 93, verse 1, The Lord reigneth, He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith He hath girded Himself. The world also is established that it cannot be moved. I'm always intrigued in the conversation that existed between Pilate and the Lord Jesus Christ. In that 19th chapter of John verses 10 and 11 Pilate is speaking to Christ who has been arrested and brought to him for his sentencing then said Pilate unto him unto Christ speakest thou not unto me knowest thou not that I've got the power to crucify thee and I've got the power to release thee 
Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. I didn't really notice this till in my study this morning when I was reading verse 10 and also verse 12. Pilate was doing a lot of lip smacking. Do you know what lip smacking is? It's normally what you get on the news broadcast on television. Just a bunch of lip smacking. And nobody knows a thing. Dumb, stupid people have no reality of truth and what truth is. This is what I noticed in my study. Pilate said, don't speak this way to me or don't treat me as a a, a subordinate of you. Do you not know that I've got the power to crucify you and I've got the power to release you? He said that in verse 10. In verse 12 it said, From thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. Pilate's making himself out to be a liar. He said one place, I can release you, I've got the power to release you, and now he can't exercise that power to release him. Hmm. How will the Son glorify the Father? As we see in verse number 2, Christ has power over all flesh. All flesh. Even the demons of the man at Gadara had to ask the Lord's permission before they could enter into the swine. You remember the Lord commanded the demons to come out of a man? And they quivering came out and said, Lord, please, please don't, don't, don't send us out of the world. I mean, put us in the swine. And the Lord put them in the swine instead. Uh, I don't know but what this is. It doesn't say it, but it does make sense to me. I heard one preacher say, and I believe he's right. He said the reason the Lord put the demons in the swine is because the Jews were bootlegging whiskey. And what happened to the swine? Even the swine were drunk. 2,000 of them ran off over the cliff and all 2,000 of them died. Who was in control of that? The demonics, spirits that possessed the man, not at all, but Christ himself. And the glory was going to God the Father. He has power over all flesh. All flesh. He has power over infidels as well as he has power over believers. He has power over presidents and rulers just like he has power over the working class of people. Everybody is under the jurisdiction of God Almighty. He is the truly architect of the universe. He's God, a sovereign God. Christ is the giver of eternal life. How do we know that? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life to those who believe. 
He's the giver of eternal life. The beginning of eternal life is in regeneration. Let me back up. The beginning of physical life is in generation. There'll never be a baby born alive without generation. It is God that gives physical life. Okay? Bring that over to the second birth. Jesus Christ said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Generation gives physical life. It is regeneration that gives spiritual life. And the sinner has no part in regeneration, my dear friends, any more than he had part in his generation. A baby does not bring about his own birth. God does that. God brings about the second birth in regeneration. In Ephesians 2.1, And you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. The beginning of eternal life is regeneration. And the Son glorifies the Father in that. The continuation of eternal life is in sanctification. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it's not me that lives, it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for me. That's old time sanctification. But is of the Lord. The continuation of eternal life is in sanctification. And even at death, we continue to live. Brother Tom Hanna did not have to wait four or five days until his funeral so he could live again. Brother Tom Hanna didn't die spiritually. He died physically. And he left one thing for the survivors, the house in which he lived, called a coffin. Huh? Is that okay? It's so, well, it's not okay. It's all right. And therefore, to be absent from the flesh is to be immediately present with the Lord. He didn't have to be resuscitated when he got to heaven. That quickly. You say, well, is there anything in the Bible that talks about that? A little bit. The crown of eternal life is in glorification. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. Philippians chapter 3. Verses 20 and 21. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned (laughs) like unto his glorious body, 
according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. We work so hard, don't we? On our bodies. If we get too much weight, we want to lose a little bit of that. And if we lose too much weight, we want to add on a little bit to that. And if we're getting a little bit old and wrinkled, we try to fill those wrinkles in as best we possibly can to be presentable. You know, God says it's a vile body. And it's headed for the grave. Yes, sir. But God's going to change our vile body to be like unto his glorious body. Fashion it. He will fashion it like unto his glorious body. And we shall live forever. I do like the song when we've been there 10,000 years. Right, shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Now let me close by this question. Who are those that are given to Christ? That's so important. Who are those who are given to Christ. In this 17th of John, look at it in verse number 6. He's already referenced it in verse number 2. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Look at verse number 6. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. And in verse number 11, And now I'm no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me that they may be one, as we are. And verse number 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. And none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And in verse number 24. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, me. I want to make an assignment for you. Run a good study and a good reference on who in the world are these whom the Father gave the Son. Now, the Son can do one of two things with those whom the Father gave him. He can either save them or he can damn them. If he damns them, it defiles the lordship of God Almighty and the relationship the Son has with the Father. Those whom the Father gave the Son will be saved. Why is that so? Because the Father gave them to the Son. He didn't give everybody. He gave somebody. They're called the elect of God. 
And this election took place before you and I were ever born, before the foundation of the world. God hath chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And now Christ himself alludes to these, Father, those whom thou hast given me. I've lost none. Who are those given to Christ? Not all, but only those whom the Father gave to him to die for. Again in Isaiah chapter 53, two verses quickly. Isaiah 53, verse 6 and verse number 10. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The us refers to the sheep. He's talking about sheep here. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord laid on him our iniquities, the iniquities of his sheep. And then in verse number 10, once again, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He'll see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The Father was completely satisfied with the atoning work of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, concerning those that the Father gave the Son before the foundation of the world. He does not give eternal life to everyone. John chapter 6, verse number 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And I'm here to tell you, if people eventually do not come to him, they were never given to the Son by the Father before the foundation of the world. If they do come to the Son, they were given to the Son by the Father before the foundation of the world. John 6.37, precious verse. And so our Lord continues this prayer of intercession. In verse number one, he speaks about the glory that belongs to God, and he wants the Son to glorify the, the Father also. And as thou hast given him power over all flesh, he should give eternal life, give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Let's stand, please, for prayer.